Hello everybody, Boozy here. Before today's episode of Boozy's Legal Funhouse, I wanted to give you a heads up. This episode discusses lawyer health, physical, emotional, and mental. I'm joined by a couple panelists in this discussion and how the practice of law can have deleterious effects on the mental health, physical health, and emotional well-being of attorneys. Because of this, I feel it's only fair to tell you. Tonight's episode will have discussions of suicide and self-harm at certain points throughout. If this is going to upset you, I encourage you, don't listen to it. We'll be here next week again with a new topic, one that won't affect your mental, physical, or emotional health. Thank you, and please enjoy Boozy's Legal Funhouse. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Boozy's Legal Funhouse. I am your host, the Boozy Badger slash Boozy Barrister. Tonight's episode, episode 9, The Law is Bad for Your Health, wherein we are going to discuss the basics of uh, pulling back the curtain, really. I mean, that's what we're doing. We're pulling back the curtain. Everybody is used to lawyers being calm, cool, and collected on television and in media. And the truth of the matter is practicing law is hell. It is just pure hell. I have some guests with me tonight. I have Buddy Goodboy Esquire. Say hello, buddy. Hello. And Tiago Montero. Say hello, Tiago. Hello. If they want to use their real names, they can. And for all of you who are listening to the podcast on Wednesday, please understand, we're not as weird as we sound when we say our names. We just prefer to be anonymous animals on the internet. Uh, Boozy's Legal Funhouse, and I should open before anything, even though there's not going to be legal advice tonight given in any way, shape, or form, is an educational, informational, and hopefully entertaining podcast. While everybody on this podcast is a licensed attorney, we are not your attorneys. The only way to make us your attorneys is to appear in one of our offices, sign an engagement letter with us after we have agreed to take your case and met with you, and pay us a retainer amount of our choosing. Outside of that, anything you hear needs to be run past a licensed attorney within your jurisdiction. So, no matter what you may hear tonight or how good it may seem, please do not go out there and say a fat man who pretends to be a cartoon badger on the internet told me to do this. With that said, as we start off every podcast i do want to give a special shout out to our producer level and above patreon supporters those are our five dollar level and above patreon supporters over at patreon.com slash lawyers and liquor so a special thank you to jeremy the head fox and <clears throat> excuse me Jeremy the Head Fox and Dragor, Nikolai, Tezcat, Magic, Jag, Wayland, Roche, Beaten, Dozer the Trash Panda, Eddie the Weather Fox, Mark Beckwar, Mama T, Uncle Kage, Lisa Lupe, Mark Phaedrus, Netherlinks, Pandemonium Hawk, Petrov, Neutrino, Scott Skunk, Tyrant, Buddy Good Boy, CC Otter, Chroma Hydra, David Hunter, Ed B. Cali, Feck, Gross Goat, Grace Jane Gullinger. Ian Delahorn, Jason Knight, Just Dave, Calic, Coma Blood Paul, Mark Whipple, Michael Blocker, Sean Rabbit, The Dragon Show, Wheelie, and Zeros the Lion. Special thanks to all of them out there. Before we get into tonight's topic, though, as always, we have to have the legal news roundup. But before we do that, why don't our guests introduce themselves to the audience? Buddy, you have appeared 
on the show before. Thank you for coming back. But in case somebody said, I'm not going to listen to that old episode that this person who pretends to be a dog may have appeared on, let our listeners know a little bit about your background. Hi, um, I'm Buddy Goodboy. I have been in and around the furry fandom for about 10 years. I've been a lawyer less than that. Um, <laughs> so people are saying that I'm a little bit quiet. So just let me know if I, if I, I need to turn up my volume or anything. Anyway, um, I've worked for um, a couple of different bankruptcy law firms. I've also worked for a government contractor uh, doing staffing, mainly for Department of Defense medical um, facilities. So, um, so I've done a lot of different stuff. Currently, I'm working as in-house counsel for a medical practice. Yeah, people are saying you're a little quiet. I'll turn you up over here myself as well. Uh, Thanks. That said, uh, I do want to remind everybody, especially when you hear things like, oh, this person's saying I'm a little quiet and things like that, uh, the Legal Funhouse is recorded in front of a live audience. So that means that you're going to hear all the fuck-ups we have tonight, and there's going to be plenty of them, I guarantee you. Tiago! This is your first time in my little corner of internet hell. Dear God. Why don't you tell people who the fuck you are? I am a fucking red deer named Tiago Manieri Leon. I uh, practice in a small, well, one hour a medium firm uh, in Maryland. We do a little bit of everything. We're in one of those counties where you still need to be a bit of a generalist in order to stay uh, alive, for lack of a better term. Family law, debt collection debt collection defense criminal defense a little bit of criminal defense mostly dui traffic um pretty much anything under the sun i've probably handled i have an adoption case tomorrow and, and i, I want to just point out that these two people are unabashed furry trash because i informed them before we started this evening that this is a recording for the podcast, that while we're live on the Twitch channel, uh, twitch.tv slash boozybadger, this is a recording for the podcast. A, a professional podcast about legal matters that's in the government section of the podcast services. And these two assholes immediately are like, hi, I'm Buddy Good Boy. I've been in the furry fandom for. And I was like, I'm a deer. I, what the fuck? Oh, stupid. Come on! I've been a real person all day. Do you know how stressful that is? I've been a real person my whole life! You just started this morning? <laughs> to be fair, I started last week. Oh. So, buddy, you're familiar with this. Tiago, this one's going to be new for you, but we start every episode here with a half-hour legal news roundup where we talk about three pieces of legal news that I have cobbled together throughout my day. The first one's a fun one. My schadenfreude went through the roof when I read this. It is <clears throat> from the ABA Journal, where we get most of our articles. Judge apparently didn't realize his belittling references to a slain man were being broadcast live on YouTube. A judge. Oh, that's in, happened to everybody. Oh, yeah. 70 year old judge of the Clark County, Washington courts, Judge Darvin Zimmerman, was unaware that 
After the hearing that was being broadcast live on YouTube ended, the people heard his statements about a man who was killed by police officers during a drug force raid. Zimmerman referred to the slain individual, 21-year-old Kevin Peterson Jr., as so dumb because he thought he would go to jail for a relatively small drug bust, which involved the attempted sell of Xanax. Zimmerman then went on to describe Peterson as the black guy they are trying to make an angel out of. He spoke negatively of the dead man's father, saying he woke up the day after the slain with, quote, dollar signs in his eyes and George Floyd's attorney. I, 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 oh, oh, Jesus, fuck. Yeah. Uh, hmm. Jesus fucking, like law is impartial and blind, right? Like that, that's what we tell people. And you've got a 70- well, What we don't tell people is that law is also sometimes stupid. Yeah. Law is sometimes elderly and racist, apparently. Yeah, like well, you know, like, like the way you said that's that. not surprising anybody. I I doubt anyone who listens to me is surprised to hear a lawyer say sometimes the law is just bad. Uh, sometimes the law is going to refer to you as so dumb after you've been murdered. Uh, <laughs> you would think that this story can't get any worse, right? Like, I mean, this this is to me. This is a good thing to come out of live streamed hearings because typically the only people who would have heard statements like that would have been court officers and attorneys who, while they may say something, would be more likely not to say a damn word because they have other cases in front of that judge. Uh, but, you know, th- there's more to the story. Do you think it can get worse? Oh, oh, uh, uh, yes. May I answer this one? Yeah, go ahead. Yes. Yes, it can get worse. Buddy, how do you think this story could get worse? Oh, um, well, I think that um, he could try to defend his actions and attempt to explain them away and then make them incredibly worse. Oh, well, that that's one way. Tiago, do you have any ideas how this one could get worse? How this unmasking, uh, or I should say de-fucking-hooding of the law in this instant could get worse than it is? The only thing I can think of is some choice words that should never be repeated by anybody. Mm. Well, let me tell you how it can get worse. Judge Zimmerman's son has a very interesting job. Do you know what Judge Zimmerman's son's job is? No. Judge Zimmerman is a is the father of a Clark County, Washington sheriff's deputy. And his son, the Clark County Sheriff's deputy, was a member of the task force raid that killed Peterson. While his son did not fire his gun during the incident, he was present on the raid. 
Zimmerman just supposed to recuse themselves for that kind of thing. That you see, like and, and I'm not clear. I, I don't know. Was Zimmerman hearing this case? Or was this just like Zimmerman decided, you know what? It's not related to my job at all right now, but it's time to reveal myself to everyone. What the fuck? Uh, and, and buddy, you had said he could have made it worse by making a, a statement and apologizing and, and doing all those, this is not representative of who I am, right? Right? You know, he could definitely do that. That's definitely one of the two options. Well, he didn't say it, buddy. He he didn't. You'll be glad to know he did not make a a verbal statement regarding that. Instead, he texted the newspaper. My lifetime goal has been and will be to be fair to everyone. I have spent my whole life helping and mentoring mainly marginalized youth. Yeah, well, you can definitely tell from the way you're uh, sensitive to the needs of minorities. I I just... Oh. Huh. Oh. Welcome to a lesson for the law. It It is not colorblind. Period. It, it is definitely not... My God, could you have imagined that a year ago if that had happened? If that had been said? And a judge had been... And the, where it happened had been found? That judge would no longer be on the bench. And I would argue that's a good thing. Yep, got to back you up with that one. I, was I once quit a job after two days because the uh, <laughs> the head lawyer working on the case used terminology like that. Well, that brings up a good question because we we all we all know people in our professional realm who say and do things like this and are never going to be called on it because of who they are. Would you say that's accurate? No, listen, listen to the motherfuckers who yeah, want to keep their jobs. Uh, <laughs> listen to these two. Oh, yeah. Don't all rush to speak up at once. Absolutely. Tiago, you haven't talked in a while. Yeah, I, you look okay. like you've got something specific. You're, you're acting like I'm asking you for a list of fucking names. I'm looking for a yes or a no. No, I mean, I've there have definitely been attorneys who have said things uh, here and there, especially in more rural parts of Maryland. Uh, I can't think of a specific example of a specific attorney, but it, it's a thing that happens. You hear comments that are grossly inappropriate i i just i, I do I, I have to say i love the fact and this is this is why they're never going to get called on it by the way folks and every practicing lawyer knows it is we all know who these lawyers are but did you notice what i'm like we all know that right at dead fucking silence like i i'm sitting over here trying to figure out if the audio for everyone but me has cut the fuck out i'm listening for like someone to fart in the background because they're like oh shit should i say yes What's he asking me for? What, what's going on here? Um, 
Oh my God! Well, let's let's move from. I, I you know I would ostensibly say that somebody getting unmasked, especially a member of our judiciary or their judiciary, not my fucking judiciary, uh, getting unmasked like that publicly because of the pandemic. Moving things online is a good thing, but let's move on to something that is undeniably a good thing. So we we have been hearing about uh, all these occurrences during this time of COVID where things have happened in online hearings and online trials, uh, cats photobombing from jurors' backgrounds, uh, cats becoming lawyers apparently, things like that. But we have one where actually the Zoom hearing probably prevented harm. From the ABA Journal, and I actually got to watch this video, a prosecutor's suspicion during an assault trial, an assault hearing, led to the arrest of the defendant. A Michigan man named Kobe James Harris was appearing uh, via video for a Zoom hearing for domestic abuse, having been accused of assaulting his girlfriend. His Both his girlfriend and him were on the call, ostensibly separately, with a protection order in place. However, during that hearing in St. Joseph County, Michigan, the prosecutor, Deborah <clears throat> Davis, paused and asked the court to confirm the defendant was not in the same house as the victim. This observant prosecutor, while watching the hearing, had noticed that the victim kept looking off to the side when answering questions, and that Mr. Harris began to do the same, that the backgrounds were similar and things along those lines, and spoke up to say, Your Honor, I have reason to believe that the defendant is in the same apartment as the complaining witness right now, and I am extremely scared for her safety. The fact that she's looking off to the side and he's moving around. I want some confirmation she is safe before we continue. The judge asked the witness where she was, and she said, I'm at my house. She asked for the address and simply gave, it's my house, before the address. When asked where he was, the defendant gave a different address. The judge asked him to take a picture of the address on the house, at which point the defendant said he could not do so because the phone he was using for the hearing had very little power. The prosecutor then interrupted and in a case of instant justice advised the police who she had been communicating with during this time period had arrived for a welfare check at the woman's address. What do you think they found when they knocked on the door? Well, you're the litigators here. I'm going to hazard a guess and say the defendant. He was there, motherfucker. He was there. Now, I actually watched the video of this. And it, 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 it is incredibly fast response time. Yeah. She had that prosecutor was on the ball. She knew something was wrong before she brought it up to the court. She had already arranged with the police to do a welfare check, then identified it to the court. At which point the police were already on route to the location before anything else could happen. They located the defendant in there. The next screen is the defendant on camera 
having left the call for Loba on camera with a cigarette in his mouth being handcuffed. The defendant then stated to the court that neither he nor his girlfriend wanted the no contact order to continue and said, I asked that be dropped. I'm sorry. I lied to you. I knew the cops were outside. I don't know why, at which point, and I have seen this video, the link will be up in the show notes. Uh, the judge said, I'm going to advise you to stop talking. He said he was revoking Harris's bond and the prosecutor was going to be likely going to be charging him with obstruction of justice. The defendant tried to speak again and the judge again stopped him saying, quote, you're digging your hole. You hit bottom and you're continuing to dig. Officer is directed to take him into custody. Bond is revoked. It really is a glorious video, and as I said, it will be in the show notes for this episode. Uh, What are your thoughts about that? Have that instant fucking karma. Like, I got a little lawyer stiffy, to be honest, watching that happen. I got got a little justice chub going on. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, definitely appealed to the the little justice lover in me. I mean, it never happened. I mean, I've never seen it happen that fast, though. I mean, it almost never happens. Yeah, I mean, like the uh, you know the only reason it happened that fast is the prosecutor probably the moment he logged the fuck on and started talking the prosecutor's going yeah something's wrong something something's not right here the backgrounds look similar somebody's looking off the side you know before the prosecutor even brought it up to the court mm-hmm. they already had the cops in route if you watch the video it's obvious you can tell that they're in the same house uh, by the way you have probably to leave in the same room you you have to give his defense attorney credit though because his defense attorney don't like didn't react at all like his defense attorney did like there was no his defense attorney the whole time was just straight stone face, face stone face could like fucking carved out of mount rushmore no reaction whatsoever that is that is not a man i want to play poker against because every single like i would have been like what the fuck like my face but i mean i've said it like i probably would have i probably would been like what the fuck but my face would have definitely broadcast that the moment that they were like yeah we're sending the police out because that's the moment you know you're fucked. Right then. That's when you're like, well, this is fucking over. <laughs> Thank God I got paid in advance, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I had to say, like, the look on his face after all, after the arrest took place, when it was just all over but the crying, I got to say, the fact that he kept a straight face during all that, I, I respect the hell out of that. There's no way I'd be able to pull that off. Right? Right, and the judge, he's like, I know that you weren't involved with this, sir. You you almost want to, like, you can read the defense attorney's face like, no shit, your honor. No, no shit, you know, I wasn't involved in my client blatantly disobeying an order of the court and getting his bond revoked. No shit, you think I wasn't? Like, no, I'm, I'm not that shitty of a, I'm not a shitty lawyer, I just represent shitty people. Um, (laughs) There's a difference. Yeah. Oh, uh, Tiago, do you have any final thoughts, our quiet little friend? No, I mean, it's everyone's pretty much said it, and I do. I haven't seen the video, but the idea of keeping a straight face in that situation, I, I know I couldn't have done it. 
So our final article for the night, and this one should make everybody angry. I'm going, before I do anything else, I am going to read out the title of the article. And I just want everyone's reaction right after I read it out. Once again from the ABA Journal, Man Convicted of Murder sues Hertz for failing to produce receipt backing his alibi. I, I saw that face, wow, that, buddy. That literally sent shivers down my spine right there. Yeah. I. <laughs> I hmm. What, what are you? I have several questions. Yeah. Before before I go in to this article and and why I say this should make you angry, what are your impressions? Just off of the headline. Just off of the headline alone. Oh, Tiago, you take it. You litigate. I, you I've already actually stuff. read some of this article. Yeah, Tiago knows okay, what it is. You're the you're the babe in the woods. Yes. Find a nickel for every time I've heard that one. Okay, so my my um, instinct is to say that he was trying to say he was at Hertz renting a car while this mur- murder took place, and them not sh- showing the receipts made that means that he didn't have an alibi. Th- so thank God buddy because i was hoping both of you'd be smart enough to not immediately go on the oh stupid lawsuit your hurts wouldn't wouldn't cover for him so he's gonna sue him (laughs) train that was gonna keep you coming down and what most people would do because i saw a lot of the people who are watching live here were reacting with ellipses in the chat because they all knew that's where it was going this was going to turn in to the mcdonald's mccoffee moment uh and the stella leeback case all over again but buddy you are 100 percent correct a michigan man convicted of second degree murder sued Hertz Rent-A-Car when they failed to produce a receipt that would have backed up his alibi. Herbert Alford, age 47, was convicted in December of 2016 of murdering someone. He was sentenced to 32 to 62 years in prison. As part of his defense, his attorney had subpoenaed a receipt from Hertz Rent-A-Car showing that he had rented a vehicle at 3 p.m. on August 18th, 2011. Why does this matter? The murder happened at 2.54 p.m. on August 18th, 2011 at a location that was approximately 20 minutes away. The receipt would have placed him at the airport and made it physically impossible for him to have committed the murder. Hertz never responded to the first subpoena served on them in 2015. They never responded to a second subpoena. They never responded to show cause motions. A Hertz legal assistant stated, in 2018, the receipt could not be found and had likely been deleted. The lawyer demanded that that assistant appear for a hearing at a request for a new trial, at which point, guess what appeared? Oh, 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 the receipt. The receipt. The receipt appeared. 
A judge ordered a new trial in August of 2018. Prosecutors dropped charges against him in December of 2020, but prior to Alford's release in February of 2020, he had spent five years in prison for a murder he did not commit, based in a large part on the testimony of an informant who later recanted his allegations. Hertz did release a statement, though, uh, that said they were deeply saddened to learn of Mr. Alford's experience. You know, as if he rented a car and there was vomit in the back seat or something. Not as if he rented a car and their failure to produce records uh, related to document requests from his attorney hadn't put him in jail for five fucking years. Uh, They said that they were unable to find a historic rental record from 2011 when it was requested in 2015, continued their good faith efforts to locate it, and were finally able to locate the record in 2018 and promptly provided it, despite the fact that a legal assistant working for Hertz had previously stated the record must have been destroyed and was not in existence. Nobody said we are continuing to look for it, not up until they were getting ready to be called to trial. What are your thoughts? Buddy? Oh. Well, I I mean, if I were involved in any way, even representing these folks, my foot would be so far up people's asses they would be coughing up shoe leather. Because, good God, how do you do that to a human being? Like, leave them in jail for five years because you can't get off your ass to look for a piece of paper. I mean, come on. I, I have a question, and Tiago, I'd like to hear your take on this. Uh, what would have Hertz's duty been in this situation? Couldn't they have just said, we performed a diligent search, located nothing, so we can't respond to your subpoena? I mean, that's. I think that's the core of the issue, is they never responded to the first two subpoenas, and then that legal assistant pops up and says... We don't have it. Well, they had to have had it somewhere if they produced it later. Exactly. So clearly their search wasn't diligent enough. And you know if there was an insurance claim against this car, that record would have been out of nowhere. And let, let, let me ask, though, what is your duty of care in that situation to preserve receipts for four years because they may be crucial to someone's alibi? I think the moment they got served with a subpoena, at the very least, they were on a duty to preserve any records. Well, that, that was, but that was four years after the murder took place, after the car rental. I mean, is Hertz going to be liable for this man's four years in prison? What's the bigger cause? The police were relying on later recanted testimony from an informant, an obviously unreliable informant. I honestly don't know. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, if I'm Hertz's counsel, maybe I do an out-of-court settlement to avoid the risk of precedent in that. Maybe I tell them to give the guy some money uh, and make it go away. But, you know, what's the value of five years of your life? I, and and what's I, to say they'll even accept us? I mean, it'd have to be a pretty damn good settlement. What's to say that the, uh, what's to say that, uh, the gentleman would, would just accept any settlement and we have mark whipple in the chat 
uh, and Mark Whipple has stated, I'm going to be that guy and say they have no duty to preserve and aren't liable for the delay in production. And that's the interesting thing about lawyers because, and it segues well into the nice discussion, we know. Like, yeah, we, we'll go back and forth and we'll argue this as an academic issue when at the core of it, it's a question of humanity. Because human-wise, person-wise, you hear that story and you get angry. You're pissed. How dare the justice system have a miscarriage in it? How dare Hertz not do a diligent search and produce this receipt? How dare they take away five years of this man's life? And the lawyer in you is saying, well, you know, it really isn't Hertz's fault. Maybe the guy should have kept his receipt. Um, Yeah, well, I mean, I'm supposed to be the nice one or whatever. People keep saying that. And I'm still talking about planting feet up asses. Like, that's it's an emotional response, not a legal response. Because, I mean, the actual honest answer is, like you said, it depends on what their actual duty was. And in this particular case, not being a litigator and especially not dealing in murder cases, I don't know. And, and to be very clear, that doesn't mean we're horrible people. Uh but it does right. mean that we're we horrible reckon- people, but for different reasons. Right. Because uh, nobody on this call, nobody that you're listening to right now, is not upset by how these events turned out. But our profession makes it so that we have to recognize that no matter how the events turned out, it could just be nobody's liable. Nobody's responsible. And how do we deal with that? How do we make those arguments? How do you look somebody like Mr. Alfred in the eyes and say, you're never going to collect from anybody? That, yeah, you were wrongfully imprisoned. We don't disagree, but they're going to say that the police acted on reasonable information. Yeah, Hertz fucked up, but legally they're not liable for it. It's almost a dichotomy of human nature, and it puts lawyers under an amazing amount of stress. And you know what stress negatively affects? Your health. It negatively affects your health, bringing us to tonight's topic, health and the practice of law. So for those out there who don't follow me on forms of social media, you may not be aware that on Thursday morning, I woke up at 3 a.m. in my bed. I tried to get out of bed because I felt like things were going to come out of the wrong end of me. As I stood out of my bed, my entire body cramped. I fell backwards on the bed. I coughed. I began to spew upwards like a Moby Dick of vomit. And then I shit myself. I shit myself in my bed. I rolled out of my bed, waddled my fat ass to the bathroom, cleaned myself up, and proceeded to both vomit and defecate alternately for the next 20 minutes, at which point I went back to bed after a nice long soaking, cleaning myself up, slept for another hour, woke up, got out of bed again, and attempted to go to my office while running a plus 100 degree fever until I vomited yet once more. Notice that I said the words after my reenactment of several German porn films at three in the morning, I was still intent 
upon going into my office. Why was that, you may ask? What would drag you into your office? Well, the simple fact of the matter is I had shit to do and there was no one else who could do it but me. And it was on a deadline. And that meant that I had to go into my office. Now, thankfully, in my case, cooler heads prevailed. I was forced to stay home. I proceeded to vomit at least five gallons worth of bodily fluids throughout the day. I slept the majority of the day answering phone calls and emails from clients alternately. Woke up the next morning and, weak as a kitten, attempted to get out of my bed before I made a very quick acquaintance with the floor of my bedroom, at which point I dragged myself mightily up to my feet and tried to go back into my office. Why? Well, I had been out of the office for one day for being sick, so it didn't matter if I couldn't support my admittedly hefty girth enough to get down the stairs of my house, much less operate a vehicle and go in, because I had shit to do. Once again, cooler heads prevailed. But, notably, a person at my office called me and said, aren't we getting behind the eight ball on a few things because you are out and not handling them? And I said, we most certainly are, but I don't know what to do about it. Now, thankfully, we didn't get too far behind the eight ball, but I spent four days sick and weak. Uh, and today went back to my office despite not being at 100% when I got out of bed this morning because I had shit to do. And that story makes me sound like an asshole. That story makes me sound like somebody who doesn't care about their own physical health or well-being because I take things too seriously. But let me ask a question. We are all attorneys in here. How many of us have gone into work Sick. Buddy? Oh, yeah, definitely. Tiago? Yes. And I've stayed at work when I've gotten sick at work. How many of us have thrown up in the trash can beside our desk? Because we are too busy to leave the office. I have. I actually haven't done that, but I have stayed overnight at work. I haven't done either of those things. I've stayed stayed till 10 o'clock on a Friday night before. How many people have been told by your office staff, you need to go home, you're not well? Yes. I had another, yeah, I had another attorney suggest that to me once. How many of us have gone to court sick because you, you woke up sick that morning, you weren't sick the night before, and you had a hearing? Yep. I don't even go to court and I've done that. This was back when I was a bankruptcy attorney. All I did was go in and say, uh, buddy, good boy, you're for the debtor, and we have... Ugh. We have no reason to object. Hey, my, my father, who's an old school attorney, I've talked about him before. My father has gotten up, thrown up, walked out the door to the house, gotten into his car, thrown up in the driveway, driven halfway out of our neighborhood, stopped the car on the side of the road, thrown up, and continued driving, stopped the car on the highway on the way downtown, thrown up, gone into the courthouse, thrown up in the bathroom of the courthouse, walked in, thrown up in the courtroom in a garbage can, argued his hearing, and left to go home to lay down because there was no way he was going to get a continuance on a hearing scheduled for that day. And that sounds atypical. It sounds crazy. It sounds unreasonable. But that is an expectation 
for attorneys. It is not outside of the norm. It is not atypical. It is not unexpected. The opposite is true. It is expected for us, when ill and less on death's door, to be willing to do those things as part of our job. And here's a question. Is that good for our profession? <laughs> well, I'm going to go ahead and give you the lawyer answer of it depends. Um, is it good for individuals? No, absolutely not. Is it good for the profession to have the reputation of being absolutely reliable? Yeah, probably. I'm, I don't know whether it's worth it or not. That's a, a good question. But I do know that I haven't let any of my clients down. No, but I think at the same time, there is a point where they, there has to be some acknowledgement that these are human beings appearing, and that does get lost sometimes. I've had a case thrown out because uh, the judge didn't think I was on death's door enough to stay home, and I didn't make it to the court, and they, they dismissed the case. Yep, and that's the other thing you come up against. Like, now you're thinking, well, it's 2021. Certainly, certainly judges will understand that. But do they? Most of our judges are from the old school of lawyer culture. They're from that old, a lawyer is never sick, a lawyer has no problems, a lawyer is never unwell in any way, shape, or form, a lawyer is a competent, dedicated professional who will slaughter their own child to get to the courthouse on time. We expect you to miss births and funerals and have no work-life balance, work your ass through the night, and sleep on the couch in the lobby. Those are the types of judges we have, and when you have hearings and you request continuances from those those judges, those judges are going to say, are you in the hospital? And let me let me give you an example. A couple years back, my local bar association, we have two meetings a year of the entire bar membership. They're nice dinners. They gave a dedication award to an attorney who has since passed. He passed during the pandemic. And at the dedication award uh, for service to clients, they made certain to mention that he couldn't be there because he was hospitalized with a serious illness, but that that morning, after a couple days of hospitalization, he had, against doctor's orders, checked himself out of the hospital and gone to court to argue the case before checking himself back into the hospital. That was presented as something to aspire to. And I, I think especially now when you have remote hearings becoming more of the norm, especially from the pandemic, there's almost the expectation of, well, you might not be able to come in, but you can still boot up your computer. And if it's a simple motions hearing, you should be able to do it. Right. Yeah. Which that raises the question of uh, if you're physically able to turn on your computer and take part in a hearing, should you? Because I don't know about you folks, but like when I get sick, I can't think straight. So if I'm sick, then I should not be arguing or giving legal advice to anybody. It and just that's the first thing that goes out the window for me. And that brings up a good question that we had from M MG Loves Fun. I was about to say Mig Loves Fun. Uh, MG Loves Fun from our live chat here, which is, do you not think you perform worse while ill? And that, Absolutely. Is, that is an interesting line to walk, because what is uh, our role 
as an attorney in regards to our clients, to be their counselor and zealous advocate, and to give it our all in our best efforts. We don't owe you a win. We owe you our best shot at getting you a win, whatever a win may be in that situation. And can you effectively be an attorney if you're ignoring your own health when seriously ill? Uh, that pensive silence you hear in the podcast version of this, that's us not, none of us being able to say yes with a straight face. Because we can't. We can't. Think about litigation. Tiago, you and I are litigators. All right? I, I'm certain that there have been times where you are not 100% sitting in a courtroom and you miss something you shouldn't miss. You let something get in the record you should have objected to. You should have been on your feet. And that's on a good day. Right? I Go ahead. <laughs> no, 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 I'm agreeing with you, right? Yeah. No, I mean, I so I uh, had COVID not terribly long ago, and I got it a couple days before I had a divorce hearing. There was nobody else I could hand that hearing off to on the short notice that I needed to. Luckily, it was a remote hearing because we're in the middle of COVID times. But I remember thinking to myself after that hearing, I am glad that was uncontested. Because right. I'm sitting here on prednisone, praying that I can stay awake. Right, and, and that's the issue, though, because we we run into that. We've run into this all the time. Of this, I am lawyer. I am indestructible mindset. I'll tell you, uh, it's no secret to anybody who's been following my stuff for a while. That back in 2017, I had a very serious car accident. I had, and I I tell this story. A longtime client of mine who lives near my office had passed on. That morning, I came in, and I noticed the ambulance out front of their home, and I walked over, and uh, I talked to their brother, uh, and they were, their body was being removed from the house, and I talked to the EMT a bit and handed my card over and said, just, you know, we represent the family. Have them contact me if they need any information. I went to my office, and that evening on my way home, I hit a patch of black ice, and I slid into the car in front of me, told my car, broke my hip, put my ass in the hospital. The same ENT who had uh, transported my client's dead body out of their home that morning took me to the hospital that evening. When I'm in the hospital, I'm doped up. I can't move. I'm cursing at people because every time they try to shift me to get an x-ray, I'm screaming. I finally get moved to an inpatient room. I'm on morphine. I begin to panic. Why? I had shit I needed to do the next day. I demanded that I be discharged from the hospital less than three days after admission on a broken hip so that I could attempt to go back into my office. It did not work. By the way, I, very, I got home and I very quickly realized I should not be home. Uh, and I ended up spending a month locked into my couch on painkillers as a result. But the expectation was there that I continue to work. As a matter of fact, my firm had something called a disability clause in my contract that states if I am disabled for a short period of time, my salary is suspended and I am paid based off of the number of hours I'm able to bill for that period of time. I'm still angry about that. By oh, I, I'm amazingly angry about it. But the fact is, is my firm's small. We're tiny. And while we're very good at what we do, we just don't have the manpower to be able to pay somebody in full if they're not in the office. So for a month, I had a choice to make. Do I, while on painkillers, 
try to maintain the level of output I I have normally uh, to try to meet my salary requirements, or do I rest and recuperate? And if I chose the former over the latter, what was the impact on my clients? Because that is one of those situations. You know, I'm on bed rest. I had a very serious accident, Your Honor, and I can back it up. You're going to get continuances. You're going to get them if you ask for them. The court's not going to be like, haul your crippled ass down here uh, most of the time. Depends on your judge. Maybe old Judge Zimmerman out in Washington would insist you come in, but most judges would not in that situation. And at the end of the day, my decision was, I financially or not, it's not fair to my clients to have me representing them when I'm on painkillers more or less 24 hours a day right now, uh, I, I still went back into the office. The moment I was cleared to move around a month later, I went back into the office on a walker. I wasn't cleared to drive. I took cabs everywhere. But I went back into the office a month later, still in pain, uh, but no longer taking painkillers. Because at that point, I could no longer ignore that. We, we only made through that month through the financial assistance of friends and family members that were able to support us. But it wasn't just a financial decision. It was my feeling of obligation to my clients. And has it had an effect? Certainly. My hip didn't heal right. I'm still in constant fucking pain uh, these days. And will I qualify for a hip replacement? Shortly. But it brings up another question. How do I schedule getting the hip replacement when I feel like any time I take away from the office is depriving my clients of adequate representation or, to some extent, especially in small offices, depriving my office and therefore myself of income and the ability to keep the business running. I'm glad you asked that. And that is 100% the reason I became an in-house attorney. Um, The business end of the practice, that would keep me up all night, every night. Everything that you just said, you know, considering where's my income going to come from? What's my responsibility to my clients? Am I doing enough? These are things that me as a, I was a good Catholic boy. These are issues that are central to me. And that would kill me if I had that as my profession, like knowing that I had to do that. So I I knew that that would do that to me. So I decided to avoid the issue entirely and go in-house. So I have one client. I don't have to go chasing them down. They know where to find me. And they also have outside counsel as a backup if anything happens to me. But it still doesn't mean I can just take off and do whatever I want. I mean, I took a week off to go to Disney World a couple of years ago, and sometimes it still feels like I'm catching up from that. So it just never stops. I think these are all things we think of when we're well. Are we doing a good job representing our clients? Are we doing everything we can for them? And I think it compounds by the the overwhelmed feeling you get when you know you're sick and you know you're not going to be at 100 percent. Two weeks that I had three weeks, actually, the two weeks of actually being virally sick and then the week of recovery. I only took two days off while I had COVID because same thing. It's my big concern was I have clients, some of whom who just retained me, who have these legal issues that even if I have a boss telling me, you can take the day off, the work will be there. 
I felt truly guilty at the idea of taking off when I had someone who had a license, driver's license issue or a family law issue or whatever other issues um, that they had because for my clients, their legal issue that they've given to me is the most important thing in their lives right now. And, and this is not to say that the profession itself isn't collegial. Most other attorneys that I know, if you contact them and you say, look, I am very seriously ill, can I get an extension? They're going to give it to you. That mm-hmm. That's not the issue. And it's not just, because you hear us now and we're saying, well, we're concerned about our clients, we're concerned about their cases. And it makes us sound very altruistic, very self-sacrificing. We are the superheroes. But the other consideration here, and I touched on it a moment ago, is most lawyers are in small or solo practices. And at that point, it's not just are we representing our clients. It's a business issue because when you're a small or solo practitioner, you're not just a lawyer. You're a business owner and you are the product that you sell. And if your sole product is off the shelf, you don't make money. You know what? Here's a question then for both of you. How many years into your practice was it before you took your first sick day? Oh Jesus! My first More than two. My my first full sick day. Yes. Oh God! Yeah, more than two. As a matter of fact, I don't think I took a full sick day until my car accident. Yeah, I, I think I was about the the same ish. That was right about the time that I switched jobs to the one that I have right now, and this job's the first one where I've actually been able to take a day off. I think for me it was about a little less than one year, uh, but I feel like the more I hear other people's stories, I work for a firm that is very much not the norm. And more power to you. If you can do that, you should. it, It is not uncommon, especially as a young attorney, if you come in sick, to hear... You look like hell today. Why don't you knock off early at four o'clock? <laughs> yeah, go go home, rest up in six hours. Um, yeah, that's not uncommon because the work doesn't stop. It doesn't stop, and that actually, Dave Lister, who is a also Dozer, Dozer the Trash Panda, uh, is one of my Patreon supporters. And our Patreon supporters, I should let you know, uh, get submitted the topics in advance and the ability to ask questions in our Patreon-only Discord server. Dave asked, and it's a good lead into the next part of Attorney Help, on an abstract level, how much do you think the stress of the job contributes to unhealthy behaviors such as smoking or drinking? And thanks, Dave, for making me feel seen. I appreciate that. Um, thanks for calling me the fuck out in the middle of the podcast. Because like the people at home who don't watch the live recordings and who aren't familiar with me outside of this don't know. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, I smoke. I smoke a lot. I, I, I'm down from two packs a day, but I smoke a lot. How much does the stress of our job contribute to unhealthy behaviors? And how much does the stress of our job continue, contribute, let's just say, to overall mental health? I will take that first, but I do want to give you a little chewing out for sitting there and going to us. This is a professional stream, and then just... Airing out Dozer the Trash Panda's name on there. Uh, yeah, Dozer, Dozer actually told me, to be clear. 
This now, is a- I wasn't told this was going to be a professional podcast, or I would have, you know. You most certainly were. I told everybody that before we started, damn it. Uh- <laughs> yeah, but there's professional and there's professional. You're going to have me pull the pre-roll recording of our talks, aren't you? <laughs> but no, seriously, Dozer, I just actually had this conversation with a couple of attorney friends of mine, and I have to reevaluate my drinking. Um, the stress of the job makes it very easy for vices to become your mechanism of coping. And I don't like to admit it, but looking back over the past few days and the past couple of weeks, um, I have started to use alcohol as a coping mechanism. And I'm glad I caught it early because one of the things when you get to law school you hear is that the legal profession has one of the highest substance abuse um, statistics of all professions in the United States. And that actually is a good lead in because the it's not just us saying this. The American Bar Association, back in 2016, commissioned two studies on lawyer health and lawyer mental health. Those reports were released in 2017 and found that, problematically, attorneys have a very high level of mental health and substance abuse issues, that there is a prevalence of substance abuse and other mental health concerns among American attorneys and among American law students. The surveys found that 25% of law students are at risk for alcoholism, 17% of law students suffer from depression, 37% of law students report mild to severe anxiety, 6% of law students report having suicidal thoughts. And law school, to be fair, is a difficult time. It is. It's very much a stressful time. As much as we build it up, it does get easier. But it's a very stressful time. When I hear people talk about their midterms or things like that, I'm like, well, imagine if you took a course for an entire year, and then at the end of the year you had one fucking exam, and that exam is your grade for everything. Uh, And not only that, but you are graded on a curve based on how smart are the other people around you, and you know there's some smart fucking people there. So you may think, It gets better after law school. But another survey of more than 13,000 practicing attorneys found that 28% of lawyers suffered from depression. 19% of lawyers had severe anxiety. And 11.4% of lawyers admitted to having suicidal thoughts in the year prior is it sad to say that this in this way this doesn't surprise me and i actually thought the numbers would be higher the numbers probably are higher i mean tiago let's just keep in mind this is a self-reporting survey these were lawyers who were willing to admit these problems not only on a survey but to themselves as well You yourself were just talking about, and by the way, I'm proud of you for coming to that recognition. As I tell people, my name is Boozy, my lifestyle is not. Uh, But I'm proud of you coming to a recognition that you have begun to use alcohol as a coping mechanism, that that needs to be addressed. I'm very proud of you for that. Uh, So, you know, there's your pat on the head. Uh, The the patented boozy pat on the head for for self-awareness there to keep from becoming one of these statistics. But a month ago, 
if I had said, hey, Tiago, you, you think you may have an alcohol issue? Do you no, think you would have? Yeah. <laughs> I, prob I probably would have said you mean when I fill the wine glass halfway. Just so for people who are listening to this, uh, the um, podcast, my wine glass is one of those half bottle size glasses. It was originally given as a gag gift and it became my primary wine glass. I, just and like I said, feel free to not respond, both of you, if matter. But of us here, how many of us have a diagnosed mental health issue that we are in treatment for? I do. I I do. I I'm not in treatment mostly because I don't feel that it interferes significantly enough to require treatment. But I do I do have some intense bouts of anxiety, and I have been known to panic in the days before major caring. I, uh, my father, my father is a, a practicing attorney. Has been a practicing attorney for over forty years. He's very good at what he does. Uh, when I was in sixth grade, I came home and my father set us all down. At that point, they, they were very simple in their diagnosis and said, I have depression. And we were like, well, we, we all get sad, Dad. And he's like, no, you all don't understand. Let me tell you. Um, and it explained a lot. But my father had been a practicing attorney for many years at that point in time. And the issues that had come up were not new issues. They were existing issues. They'd been there for a long time. What had changed was he was finally addressing them. My father's been in therapy uh, for over two decades now uh, and is doing very, very well with it. Uh, has been. He's medicated. He's treated. He sees therapists. He, he manages his condition uh, the same as I do. It's one of the things that when, when I started saying, hey, I'm having problems, I got my ass in to see someone, and I got my ass in to see someone fast. But there's a lot of lawyers who don't do that, who are scared to go see a therapist, who are scared to go talk to somebody or go to a support group. Why is that? Well, for one, I know with Maryland's bar exam, one of the application questions is, do you have any mental health concerns? And the follow-up question is, are you managing it? And everybody knows if they don't answer that question the right way, that $200,000 law degree that they just purchased on student debt, they're not going to get their license to practice. Well, more than that, if you're a practicing attorney... How much of litigation, Tiago, would you say is posturing and appearing strong? Oh, the majority of it. And what what stigmas do we attach to mental health or substance abuse disorders? No, it's it's viewed as a weakness in this country, and that's part of the reason why we have such a big problem with it. Yep. It's viewed as um, a weakness or a moral failing, and it's not viewed as an actual treatable condition. That's the part that gets me. It's when it's viewed as a moral failing because, hmm, well, that's, that's a rant. I'll spare you. You get the idea. Now, I will say that there are some wonderful guides out there. And you read these highfalutin things, but it has been my experience that the best people to speak to attorneys about this, the best people that uh, can reach out to attorneys about those issues, especially substance and mental health issues, is not uh, a therapist. It's not uh, an AA mentor. It's another attorney. It's another lawyer. It's a member of the judiciary. It's somebody like that. Uh, there is a wonderful book out there. It's called uh, The Addicted Lawyer by Brian Cuban. Now, Brian Cuban may sound familiar. That's because he is the brother of billionaire Mark Cuban. Uh, 
who was a practicing attorney who had very severe mental health issues and drug abuse issues and has been very open about that and his uh, subsequent loss of his law license and now travels giving speeches to legal groups, to other groups, to law students, and has written a book on the matter about the subject of addiction and mental health in the legal field and how to recover from it. And one of the biggest ways that lawyers seek it out. And you remember I said earlier, when you're a lawyer, especially a small firm or a solo firm, you are the product and the business owner, right? Well, what's the biggest way that people seek out support for, say, alcoholism? What's the group that springs to mind? Uh, it would definitely AA. There but we the go. The problem with that is there are other people in it. Exactly. And if they find out, they know. Could, and if you're in a small could you, enough town. Yep. Go ahead. No, no, no. You're, you're saying the exact point I was about to say. If you're in a small enough town, those people that are sitting there across from you, bearing out their souls, are also looking at you going, oh, great, you're the only attorney I know that could handle this matter. Am I sure I want to give my case to you? Yeah. And word gets around. Those same yeah, people, as anonymous as people think, yeah, th those same people are gonna tell their friends when they, oh, you're you're being represented by Bob. You know Bob's a drunk, right? You, you know Bob's got a problem with prescription pain. You know Bob's significantly depressed. You know Bob likes to slather himself in peanut butter and scream at the full moon on Sundays. Uh, I know, told you that in confidence, <laughs> but but th those are the issues. So where do lawyers go? If you feel like you can't seek support at AA or NA or a mental health support group without outing yourself, without exposing or destroying your practice, where do we go for support? Well, the legal community has recognized this problem. And one of the ways that we have recognized this problem and begun to address the problem, that lawyers often feel isolated due to their position and the special trust that are put in them, and that that may prevent them from seeking help, is by establishing in every single state a directory, a lawyer assistance program. It varies based on where you are, and I am putting on up right now uh, for the show notes the ABA's Directory of Lawyer Assistance Programs. Uh, in some states, it's called the Lawyer's Assistance Program. In other states, it's the Lawyer's Assistance Committee. Uh, yeah, the other bar, Lawyers Concerned for Lawyers, Lawyers for Lawyers. Uh, the law, uh, Most of them are all that. And what it is, is it is an assistance program specifically for attorneys, if you have an alcohol issue that you are trying to get under control, it gives you a group of other attorneys and current and former members of the judiciary with those same issues that you can meet with and talk to. Uh, what percentage that you all have seen of disciplinary opinions have at their root some mental health or substance abuse issue? I don't think I could pick a number. Uh, high. I know that much. Be it a gambling addiction, be it an untreated uh, or unmanaged mental illness, be it yeah, a substance abuse I, issue. 
very high percentage. That's why these are so important. So if you're a listening night and you're a law student, by the way, most of those programs accept law students as well. They're not just for attorneys. They tend to be for lawyers, judges, and law students. Uh, if there's anybody out there listening to this who does need that, in the show notes, I will be posting the directory listing from the ABA. I strongly encourage you to reach out to that program because supporting each other as attorneys is very much an important aspect of this. Oh, yeah. And that's the only way that we're going to make this a better, more healthy profession is if people actually use the tools that are out there improve the tools that are, that are available. So yeah, definitely go do this if you think that you need it. And some of these programs may cover more than you think. The Maryland Lawyers Assistance Program isn't just for alcohol and drug abuse. It's for stress, burnout, marital and family issues. Their list includes eating disorders, compulsive spending, sexual addiction, internet addiction, and a whole range of other things. Yeah, it, it's they are very much uh, comprehensive programs for attorneys to seek help and to seek help confidentially and from other attorneys. Uh, It's almost like holding a gun to each other's heads though, because it's, you know, well, you can't tell anybody you saw me at the, at the lap meeting without somebody knowing you were at the lap meeting. Uh, What what I call the gay bar conundrum. You can't say you saw Tim at the gay bar because people are going to ask why you were at the gay bar. Not everything comes back to gay bars. Everything comes back to gay bars, damn it! (laughs) Maybe not in your experience, but certainly in mine. I Uh, live in a small town in Georgia. There aren't any. You you live outside of Atlanta. (laughs) I live 56 miles outside of Atlanta. That is outside of Atlanta. (laughs) All right. Come up here to, to Maryland. I live three hours away from Hobbit Beach. We can go and have a have fun at a drag show before hitting up the gay bars. <laughs> like people sit there, they listen to it. They're like, you know, Boozy talks an awful lot about gay bars. And I'm like, yeah, I'm married. I don't think anybody's questioning yeah, anything. No. Oh, you hope not. You hope so, not. Yeah. But, like so Fox. you would seriously drag my socially awkward ass to a, a drag show and then not one but multiple gay bars? Oh, absolutely. Because if, if you would... God bless you, because I have not been able to do that yet, and I know me pretty well. There, there is something else I, I want to bring up, and this is actually from 2014. Uh, it's a CNN article. Uh, the title being, Why Are Lawyers Killing Themselves? And it tells a story here. Uh, a Finnish Price III, a successful Kentucky lawyer and law professor, a sought-after technology consultant with a close marriage to his wife, a wonderful father to his children, managed a thriving law practice while teaching at the Chase Law School at Northern Kentucky University, and at the age of 37, he jumped to his death. Uh, the reason being the stress of all of those things had gotten to him, the high stress nature of the legal profession. And his wife, who was his law partner as well as his life partner, stated that she intentionally presented his jumping as an accident to avoid the taboo and stigma of suicide, not just for him, but for her and for their practice. This is not an uncommon thing. Uh, Harry Rankin, 58, an Ohio lawyer, uh, who was being treated for depression and then hung himself. Uh, Todd Megabo, 
of Kentucky shot himself inside his legal office in Paducah. Jim Dinwiddie, another Kentucky attorney, uh, a former University of Kentucky basketball star, killed himself. When his son was trying to figure out why, he looked at his father's depressing case files, and it made sense. Ken Jameson, Ohio, generating over half a million dollars of billings for his firm. Every year, his three children were doing well. His relationship with his wife was excellent. May of 2001, after a six-month battle with depression, he killed himself while under the care of a psychiatrist and a psychologist. Uh, it is a thing with our profession that the stress, not only of practice, but of all that comes together and attorneys kill themselves, uh, with an abnormally high, well, not say highest, but one of the abnormally high suicide rates out there. Uh, I will ask very bluntly. Do either of you know an attorney who has killed themselves? I have not. Yet. I, uh, I know two. One I knew when I was younger. Uh, another one was a, a contemporary of mine. Uh, though I'm not going to say obviously either of their names. The one when I was younger was a well-known attorney uh, who was big in his religious community. It was it, it, it was and is an open secret of what happened to him. The other one, uh, the same thing. It, it's an open secret, and I'm not going to do that to their families, but I know attorneys who have killed themselves, uh, mostly due to the stress of their cases, which brings in not just mental health but self-care. What do you all do in regards to self-care and in regards to taking care of yourself in the stressful situation of legal practice? I, uh, I play video games. I play The Sims. I create all these little families and just let, let getting out of the real world work i've found that since becoming a lawyer i watch a lot less in the field of primetime tv dramas and action adventure movies and i'm usually found watching fantasy movies or just anything that can just escape from the real world because after five days of dealing with the real world i need to get away yep um sorry i lost my internet connection for a second it's okay uh, buddy in terms of getting away from the stress of practicing law, being an attorney of dealing with your client's problems, or your, in your case, your client's problems, uh, not to not to downplay the significance, uh, buddy. For those who have may have missed it, is in-house counsel for a uh, major metropolitan medical practice, and certainly has their own share of unique stresses. What do you do to relax? Um, well, I used to write, um, lately I, by lately, I mean, basically since, um, starting legal practice, I haven't been able to actually, um, think of anything or apply my mind to it. So a lot of my hobbies tend to be very rote mechanical stuff, um, you know, that I can shut my brain off to. So, um, I don't know. I build like <laughs> a ton of little plastic robots. Um, that's the thing. 
Just just something you can do, right? Something that doesn't require yeah. a lot of hard thought. Right. It takes zero thought, zero empathy for my fellow human beings. And uh, at the end of it, I got something to hold in my hand and show for it. So at least I know what I did with my time. And it's an escape. There's one before yeah. we move to questions from uh, the Patreon supporters. There's one less topic I want to bring up in regards to attorney health, and that is the health, the cognitive health, really, of older attorneys, and what happens with that. So, as we know, an attorney, and we've said it, their product is themselves. It is their skill. It is their expertise. It is their wit. It is their knowledge and their training. What happens when an attorney starts to lose those things, not through any fault of their own, but simply because they've gotten older and those faculties have started to slip? Well, my uh, my grandfather was an attorney. He practiced up until the day he turned 65, then retired. Um, he was sharp until he was about 90. And, um, you know, after that sort of gradually declined. But that's not necessarily typical. I mean, he's got, uh, he was lucky in that he had a firm with his name on the front door. So he was successful enough he could actually retire at a decent age. But, um, but most people, as you've said repeatedly, are either solo or small practice practitioners, and that doesn't necessarily happen. Like you're, you're still the product, you're still the business. So, and unfortunately, a lot of people don't have the savings; they don't have the ability to retire. So you got to keep practicing. It's just a matter of uh, of putting food on the table. So, some people will cover for attorneys who are on the decline some people will, will do their best to help out or you know look the other way for stuff um and that kind of keeps going until it can't anymore which brings so up kind of a question should we be covering for attorneys who are making those obvious gaffes those ones that are kind of telegraphing that they're not all there i mean until there's some kind of social safety net the there's nothing else that you can do. I mean, until they start making mistakes that, you know, significantly affect their clients, and that's a matter of malpractice. Obviously, I don't think anybody's going to argue that, uh, you know, that acting on that kind of information will be the, the wrong thing to do. But um, I don't know. Until there's some kind of social safety net in place, um, all you can do is do your best to help out and try to cover for things and keep them able to work if that's the only main means of income. Well, I also think there's a part of that that's, you know, if you have a lawyer that's had a respected career who is getting older and making mistakes, there's almost, you know, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, there's probably a high number of us that will admit that we don't want to be the one to do something that could cause their career to end in disrepute. Um, and oftentimes these things, if they are reported, end up on bar counsel's table and they're dealing with a disciplinary complaint against the license that they've maintained for God knows how long. Um, Maryland actually has a method of discipline, um, well, it's technically discipline, but um, there is a, the ability for an attorney, so long as the ethical violation is not severe enough, if it's one of those, their mental faculties are going 
bar council tries to put as many of those on inactive status by consent as possible but i mean you still have a bar an open bar council investigation until that happens right and the same thing goes on in the medical profession that's one of the things that i work on is um helping uh physicians comply with uh you know investigations like that so it's nothing you want to see but unfortunately it does happen well buddy you said it a couple times and i think it's interesting to mention when you say social safety net i know what you mean and what you mean is there's so many small practitioners out there there's so many solo offices that maybe this is how they're living this they they don't have the option to retire and sit at home and just collect the social security payments because they've never really been able to put enough back for retirement or things like that over their years of practice. So if you take away their license, you have taken away their only way to live uh, whatsoever. Exactly. And But as a profession with dual concerns, shouldn't we be looking to protect their clients. And I'm not saying that this is realistically what happens. I think everybody on this call would agree that, yes, there are attorneys who kind of baby along lawyers who are starting to slip because we know that is their sole source of income. That's the only way that they're making it through each month. Uh, and we don't want to be responsible for the fall of a colleague, but isn't there a point where we owe it uh, not just to the profession, but to their clients to take some sort of action to report or address the issue. Well, I think Quack Quack Honk may uh, just ask what is significant, and I think that kind of does play into it. You know, it's mm -hmm. one thing if they, if someone's an hour late for a hearing, that you know, that's one thing to sweep under the rug. Mishandling of client funds, you're not looking at an active status. I mean, there's there i think is a point um what that point is might be something that lawyers would debate on but there is a point where it can't be accepted well significant messing up a settlement and costing your client a thousand dollars or messing up a settlement and costing your client ten thousand dollars yeah and i think that's where a lot of the discussion will end up becoming i mean mm -hmm. ideally you don't yeah. want to mess up a settlement at all so and with that we're going to turn in our last 10 minutes to the topics that we have been given by our Patreon supporters tonight in the Boozy's Discord hideout. This first one comes from uh, a uh, Question, how accurate is the trope about a lawyer's office being riddled with Chinese takeout and or pizza boxes because they're at the office way too late and order in all the time? I plead the fifth. Uh, I refuse to incriminate myself. I think it depends on your office, really, and, and yeah. it's going to depend on your office, the office culture, your own, the billing goals that your uh, that your firm sets for you. If you are a firm that has billing goals, um, you know, I know a lot of people who think that some federal government jobs are very cushy. You're in by nine, you're out by five um, jobs. I, at the same time, I've known local prosecutors at state's attorney's offices. Uh, for those of who aren't in Maryland, that's what we call district attorney's offices. You know, the misdemeanor pool. I, uh, I I briefly worked for one, and we had attorneys that would stay until seven, eight, nine o'clock at night on a regular basis. Um, yep, I used to work sixty to hundred hour weeks when I was working at this government staffing agency. Um, so yeah, that 
that one was definitely true. I mean, there was this great takeout Indian place, like one floor down and the next building over. Oh, so good. Uh, I will say I do not eat at my desk. I make a point. Uh, I don't always take lunch because some days I'm not too hungry. But I always make a point of when I do take lunch, if I am hungry, if I need to get, I take my lunch hour and I go out and I eat somewhere else because it, it gives me a chance to step away from the office for a minute. Uh, even during the pandemic, uh, my law partner would very frequently go out and then come back and eat at their desk. And I go, I'm going out to lunch. They go, hey, you're gone for an hour. Everywhere's closed. I'm like, yeah, I sit in my car in a parking lot at the Target and I eat my lunch for an hour and I read a book. Because I need the hour. Yep. Uh, I do that too. Like, for the same reasons as you. You have to draw a line somewhere. I, 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 I do go into the office on weekends. I do stay late when I need to. But generally, at towards the end of each day, about the last hour of each day, I take a look at what I have to do. And I say, do I need to stay late? Can I take some of this home with me and work on it at home at my table? Uh, where I can be more relaxed and just kind of flip through it. And if the answer is, you don't really need to stay late. There's nothing that you have to get done right now. Or you can take a little bit home and work on it on the couch while sitting around with your family. I do that. I try to leave the office every day uh, no later than 6 or 6.30 p.m. unless there is something going on that I have to be there late. I, I have learned over years of practice that I would much rather take a few things home to work on at night as I feel like it than be chained to my desk for 20 hours. Now, that's not to say I don't pull 20 hours uh, days. I do. I think every lawyer does. Every lawyer uh, gets to a point or has something going on where they, they've got to be there. There's no way around it. And those could be unhealthy, those 100, 150-hour weeks. But I feel a huge reason for burnout in the legal profession is doing that on a regular basis. Our next question is from Ascari. Uh, were you ever so worked up with work that you considered quitting? Or do you know people who did just that? I certainly know people who have. As a matter of fact, I was, I was looking not too long ago on Facebook at my law school class, and I was amazed at the number of dedicated attorneys who are no longer attorneys. They are realtors, or they have become teachers, or they have, they have, after several years of practice, said, this is not what I want to do anymore. I've had it. That's about half of my graduating class right there. Uh, it's, number of the, it's number of the lawyers I interned for back when I was a law student. Yeah. I, th there are certainly plenty of attorneys out there, and it's a huge thing with the profession as well. We burn out, and we'll burn out young. I, uh, mm -hmm. it, it, the more you work, the more likely you are to burn out. Uh, you know, one of the reasons and the follow up was what was the most time you've spent at work in a week? I've spent four straight days at the office. I have walked into my office on a Monday morning at 5 a.m. and not walked out until Friday morning at 5 a.m. Uh, I have spent four straight days at my office before to get things done uh, when I had cases that required that. And uh, that's how you burn out, is you keep yep. an unsustainable work balance like that. And would you say, it's kind of a follow-up for me, uh, that that is an expectation at some firms, to work these ungodly hours, especially as you're just starting out? Oh, absolutely. Well, absolutely. Yeah. Especially in big law, which is 
one of the reasons that I never wanted to get into that. I did do a degree, but that's not, uh, uh, sorry, got distracted by the, <laughs> the chat there. Um, I'm also a moderator of the chat. Anyway, um, what was the question again? Oh, the expectations. Absolutely, that was an expectation. Particularly in some of the bankruptcy mills where I was working at, um, considering that um, for every, literally everybody in the office other than me, they were paid based on productivity. Everybody was just there all the time. I was paid in a salary because uh, Chapter 7 bankruptcies, which I was in charge of all of, were not considered as uh, important or deserving of time, respect, pay, support, you know, none of that. I mean, I went to law school uh, with somebody, we were in clinic together, um, and she was the one who wanted to go work at a big law firm, and one of her comments was, uh, I know I'm going to have a nice office because I'm going to have a sofa, and that sofa is going to be where I sleep. And, and Tiago, you say that almost judgingly, but you and I have mutual clients, and we have talked about mutual clients' cases together, and I can remember at least on one occasion you called my cell phone at 8 p.m. at night to discuss oh, yeah. a mutual client's case. And I said, what are you doing calling me at 8? And you said, well, I'm just at the office working on it. And I said, it is 8 p.m. Go home. So to kind of loop in a, uh, a question that I think live suing is how you pronounce it, if I've been fired by a client. I have been fired by a client, and I was after staying till 10 o'clock at night on a Friday working on their file because there was a deadline. And I got dumped things at the very last minute. I, I, every attorney's been fired by a client. Oh yeah. Every attorney's fired a client. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, come pick Who's, up. Come pick up your file, or stop by. I'll have your file ready for you. Or phrases every attorney has said. We mail files. Now, who's had a client threaten to kill them? You me. <laughs> me. Threaten to no. I haven't had one threaten to kill me, but I did have one that took fifteen sheriff's deputies to get out of the building. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and call that one yes. So we've got two more questions. Uh, this is from Jeremy the Head Fox. And, uh, how do you prevent yourself from bringing work home with you, i.e. keeping the troubles of work out of your home life? When I figure it out, I'll let you know. <laughs> I refuse to take work home with me. I actually... I know a lot of friends of mine who are lawyers who got excited about the idea of being able to work from home during the pandemic when it became because they work for firms that you were in the office. That's that's why we have the office. I do the opposite. I refuse to bring work home because I know once I start bringing work home, not only am I crappy of being productive at my own house, but I need that separation to avoid just that bringing the work home. Mm -hmm. So well, my well, thing with my the uh, physical separation definitely helps. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, when I've actually had the ability to work in other spaces other than my office, I've still like, for example, gone to the library or gone to, uh, you know, sat down at a sandwich shop and just sat there for 10, 12 hours, well, you know, well, doing all, the work. Cause all I can't right. Do home. All right. You literal thinkers. But I think the question's more geared mm -hmm. towards how do you keep the problems, the things you see or deal with? during your professional life as an attorney from impacting your home life? How do you keep from sitting at the table and thinking about the guy who shook his baby to death? Sorry, I, yeah, that, I was, uh, I was kind I'm of, not good at that. That's so, actually I'm, parlaying the not 
bring not actually working at home is i try my best to compartmentalize mm-hmm. um and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't I, um i think that's a good answer compared um i i just became a a candy coated bastard to some extent uh, when I get home, people joke at my house. I come home, and the first thing I do most days is I take my shirt off. I take my shirt off, I change into a pair of sweatpants, and I sit in my recliner. And that is the moment that I stop worrying about work. Maybe I've brought physical work home with me to look at, but there has to be a firm separation there. You can't be on all the time. Does that mean there are not times that I wake up at one in the morning and think, shit, did I file this? I better drive to the office and check. Um, because I I have done that. I still do do that at times. But you, you have to be able to separate your work life and your personal life. Uh, and the inability to do so, I would argue, is probably one of the reasons we see such high mental health or anxiety or substance abuse rates in our profession and i think i mean that's yeah i definitely agree with that and i think there's an extent to it that's hard because i mean like you said i mean we see people who shake their babies we look at people and say we've done everything we can but unless something happens to your child there's nothing more we can do and if you don't compartmentalize, it will start eating at you. Yeah. Uh, yep. Which which is a, a good way to put that. Even though you will sometimes hear lawyers say things like, we'll, we'll laugh about that. We're not really laughing at it. It's, it we're laughing because if we don't distance ourselves, we will never stop crying. Yes. Yep. Uh, and our final but question. That's, for- that's not actually... That's not necessarily the bad thing that it sounds like because, you know, somebody has to be there to help people whose lives these are. This isn't even our lives that we're talking about. Like, we're doing this for other people to help them out. And uh, somebody has to. And I would say you can't become too emotionally invested. Uh, you, You can't. People don't pay you to be emotionally invested. They pay you to be a zealous and objective advocate to give them counsel that is in their best interest. And you can't do that if you get too close to the matter. That's actually, I had a client ask me uh, if we could socialize outside of their case. I said, no, not while I'm representing you for that exact reason. Uh, Our final question is from Jamie Lynn. Uh, Is the whole working yourself to death trope we see in fiction a real thing at big cutthroat firms? Who wants to field this one? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Uh, I I have actually, this is one of the reasons I did not want to go into big law despite the fact that money is good. I had a family and I wanted to see them. Um, I, I have heard a big law associate in their second year practice say my firm offers as much vacation time as you want, as long as you don't take any. Yeah, no, that's, I, I have a family member who uh, lives in Greenwich, Connecticut and knows a number of New York city, big law attorneys. And she's her thing. I remember her telling me they're all the same. They work every single day. They come home, they say hi to their kids. They go to their home Mm -hmm. offices. They work, they are miserable and they're divorced by 40. Well, like I said, my grandfather was a big law New York City attorney. Um, 
And unfortunately, he lived up to a lot of the stereotypes about that. So I got to see very close up what that winds up looking like towards the end of your career. And it's it's not great for your home life. Uh, I will I will tell you a story that my father, because my father did for about four or five years before he went and opened his own firm. He was a big law attorney in the South. Uh, he did hospital acquisitions for a firm, uh, and he did he was their due diligence guy. He was the guy who did all of that in addition to his litigation work with them. And they would give you bonuses. You had expected billable hours that you were supposed to hit every single year. Uh, but they always expected you to exceed them. And they tied your bonuses to how much you exceeded your billable hour requirement. And one year, a bunch of them were comparing their bonuses. And one guy said... Well, my bonus was X number more than yours. And Dad said, well, how many hours over did you bill for that? And it was this ungodly number. Dad said, I billed this many over because that's what I wanted as a bonus. And you know what I did with the rest of the time? I went home and I spent it with my wife and kids. <laughs> and that's when that's when Dad said, he, he said, that's when I knew I'd never make partner at that firm. Because, <laughs> because I was just kind of, you know, yeah, I could get more money, but I'd rather go home and be with my wife and my kids and spend time with them rather than not being there. So, uh, final thoughts. Hmm. I want to say something like it's not as depressing as it sounds, because if there are more <laughs> students listening to this. I, I agree. It's we, Look, we're all still in this profession. We are all still continuing to do this. So that should be your takeaway. It, it's not about scaring you away. It's about pulling back the curtain and showing you some of the warts on the face of the legal profession. Some of the pitfalls and dangers that are out there and some of the ways lawyers fail themselves uh, health-wise and self-care-wise and in doing so can actually end up failing their clients and to stress the importance of taking care of yourself because if you don't take care of yourself, you can't take care of your clients. And I absolutely agree. I mean, we are in a profession which gives us so much power over other people's lives whether we like it or not um and it's stressful and these are th what we've talked about in this uh in this podcast and in this presentation i mean these are things that really aren't talked about i actually had never looked at the lawyers assistance program in, in maryland uh, to see what they offer uh before now so that will do it for episode nine of Boozy's Legal Funhouse. The law is bad for your health. Uh, I want to thank my guest tonight, Buddy Goodboy. Thank you. And Tiago. Thank you. Remember, Boozy's Legal uh, Funhouse is a podcast that is posted every Wednesday on your favorite podcasting service. If you'd like to support us, you can always do that over at patreon.com slash lawyers and liquor. It will give you access to things like the Discord server, uh, the ability to ask questions uh, for our live casts. We film these live at twitch.tv slash boozybadger.com. 
every Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. As always, I want to thank you for joining me tonight. I hope this episode was informative, enlightening, and I'm not going to say entertaining, because let's be honest, it was depressing as fuck. But thank you to my guests. I'm the Boozy Barrister, Boozy Badger. This has been Boozy's Legal Funhouse. Thank you for listening, and have a wonderful day. Hey everybody, Boozy back again at the end of the episode. I just wanted to remind you that Boozy's Legal Funhouse is actually recorded live on twitch.tv slash boozybadger every Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. If you have topics that you would like to hear mentioned on Boozy's Legal Funhouse or suggestions, or you just want to tell me to go fuck myself, feel free to do so at boozy at lawyersandliquor.com. Until next week, I'm the Boozy Barrister. You have a great day.